Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome back to Work Minus. Today, our guest is Callum Chase. He's the author of The Economic Singularity, and this is Work Minus Jobs. Hi, Callum. How are you? Hi, Neil. I'm very well. How are you? I'm excellent. It's always great to get into this topic of of talking about singularities, things far in the future, automation and AI. And so this is going to be a great topic for us. But I want people to know about you a little bit ahead of time. So give us a little bit of background about who you are and the types of things you write about. Okay. Um, I was in business for 30 years and retired inadvertently and involuntarily in 2011. But that worked out very well because I, as I don't play golf, I pursued another hobby, which is a strong interest in artificial intelligence. Back in 2011, very few people were thinking about that. Uh, But I had long thought that AI was going to have a huge impact on all of us and and it was going to come sooner than people thought. And so I wrote a a novel about it because I, I wanted to get other people thinking about it. And how do you get people thinking about something? You make a Hollywood movie. Unfortunately, I wasn't in a position to make a Hollywood movie. So I wrote a novel in the hope that that might get options. Uh, it didn't. And some friends said, it's a good book, but there's a, there's a couple of nonfiction books hiding in it. You should take them out. So <laughs> I, uh, I did take them out and I published them separately. And so I've written three main books on the future of AI, one fiction, two nonfiction. And what's the name of your fiction book? The fiction book is called Pandora's Brain. And it's about um, the arrival of the first super intelligence on the planet. And the two nonfiction books are Surviving AI, which is about the technological singularity, superintelligence, and the economic singularity, not surprisingly, is about the economic singularity, which is joblessness. Yeah. One topic I wanted to get into later, but we may as well talk about now, is just about science fiction in general. Um, for me, I've kind of recently become aware of the great you know, fun that, that's there in science fiction and these really deep topics that people try to wrestle with, but not, as you said, not just like, hey, here's what's what's coming next when you think about these topics, but hiding it in a story or, or letting the story drive the narrative. What's your background in all that? Well, I've read science fiction from when I was small. And in fact, I think science fiction has a great deal in common with philosophy and philosophy is what I did at university. Um, I like to say that uh, science fiction is actually philosophy and fancy dress. Philosophy tries to get at, tries to answer big questions about the most fundamental questions we ask as humans, things like what is truth, what is belief, what is knowledge, uh, do we exist at all? And it does that by conjuring up thought experiments. And those thought experiments are often very similar to the things, to to the ideas, the the, the sort of possible worlds that science fiction authors write. So, there's, I think there's a strong commonality there. And that's really why I, I wrote a, a science fiction novel about superintelligence, uh, because I wanted people to think, as I say, more about the, the huge impact that AI is going to have on us all in the future. So I want to go to deep into this um, economic singularity. So explain what you mean by that term. So the term singularity is borrowed from maths and physics, and it means a point in a process where a variable becomes infinite. And the Classic example is a black hole. At the center of a black hole, the gravitational field becomes infinite. And what happens then is that the laws of physics break down and everything changes. 
Uh, it was first applied to human affairs by a chap called John von Neumann, who is one of the founding fathers of modern computing, a, a brilliant polymath, Hungarian polymath. And what he meant by it was that technology was moving so fast that it, there would come a point where humans couldn't keep up. And he called that point the singularity. And I take it to mean simply the biggest possible change you can have, biggest possible kind of change you can have. So it's more impactful than a revolution or a disruption or a transformation. Everything changes. Now, the term has often been applied to the arrival of superintelligence. And that is when we create an artificial general intelligence, which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human. And because computers can be improved, they can be speeded up, they can be expanded, and we can't, the AGI, artificial general intelligence, will go on to become a super intelligence and quite quickly it'll be many times smarter than the smartest human who ever existed. That's called the technological singularity. I mean, obviously, we don't know for sure it's going to happen. Quite a lot of people are sceptical about it. Seems to me it will. It's just a question of when. Some people think it'll be quite soon, 20 years or so. Personally, I think it'll be quite a bit longer than that, but probably this century. The, I, I have named another singularity, the economic singularity, because I think people underestimate the impact of joblessness, which, if it's going to come, will come well before superintelligence. And that will happen when machines get to the point where they can do pretty much everything that we do for money, cheaper, better and faster than we can. That doesn't mean that humans will be obsolete. It just means we won't be able to earn a living. Now, it might be that when machines take over all the jobs, if and when, we don't know this is going to happen, if and when machines take over all the jobs that we currently do, that we will kind of magically create some new jobs that for some reason they can never do. And we might want to get into that. I'm, I'm a bit sceptical of that. So I think we need to think about what a successful economy looks like if there are no jobs for humans. Lots of jobs for robots and for software, but no jobs for humans. And I think our job this generation, the next generation, is to work out how to make that a wonderful world. And I think we can do that. Yeah, I like some of your writing where you talked about the greatest generation, you know, which is a term that was applied back to the people who lived kind of in that World War II era. But you, you've actually said that the decisions that will be made in the next 20 to 30 years as, as millennials, as, as Gen Z and, and these people become in power and, and start to make these decisions will pretty much determine the fate of, of humanity, correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the nature of singularity is that everything changes. So the generation naming is, is quite fun and coincidentally very apt. Um, the greatest generation was... Um, the generation that fought in the Second World War, um, and many of them uh, survived the Great Depression before that. Um, then there were the baby boomers, and I'm, I was born right at the end of the baby boom period. The generation that came after that was much smaller than the baby boom generation, and nobody could quite figure out what they were for, and so they got called Generation X. And that meant that the millennials, who were born between 1980 and 2000, were Generation Y, simply because it came after X. And then the generation after that, which includes my son, as it happens, was, <clears throat> who were born after 2000, they're called Generation Z. Now, I think this is terrific because Generation Y, in a sense, will have to figure out why we are here since, we won't be, since they won't be doing jobs towards, right towards the end of their careers. Um, and Generation Z is probably the last generation, uh, maybe the last generation whose members need to die. Uh, they may be the last generation of 
what we would recognize as normal human beings, because humans will start to change dramatically out of all recognition once AI and other technologies like nanotechnology and, and really advanced prosthetics and very advanced biochemistry take hold. So I think the just by purely happenstance, Generation Y and Generation Z may be very well named. And I think it's interesting, too, that it seems like a lack of foresight, right? We, we start with X and then Y and then Z. It's like you see it coming. You see that there are no more letters after Z, like in terms of the naming convention, which re really reflects a lot of our attitudes toward all these things. Like looking at it, it's like, yeah, there, there's probably a problem coming up. We don't really want to come up with any solutions right now, which then, you know, further puts that burden on onto future generations to figure out, you know, what, what comes after Z? Nobody knows, right? I guess they'll probably go back to the beginning and become generation A of some new species, which um, could well be, um, if not immortal, then at least death would be optional for them. And they would be, in many ways, probably largely unrecognizable to us. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring up a common argument people bring, which is looking back to the Industrial Revolution. They say, okay, we brought in all these this equipment, these machines, uh, they took over farming. Now we have very few people involved in that industry in terms of manpower, but we're still doing fine. We still have all these jobs. Uh, why do you think that's a bad argument for people to play that towards the future and say, well, we'll figure out other work to do? Yeah, I don't think it's, <clears throat> I don't think it's a bad argument. It's, it's, you know, it, it is a fact. And uh, John Maynard Keynes back in the 1930s, a very smart man, uh, leading economist of his time, thought that by now, by 2000, um, we would all be walking, working very short numbers of hours a day and we would have a leisure society. And he was wrong. It didn't happen. Um, I'm considerably less smart than John Maynard Keynes. And back in 1980, I thought that uh, by 2000, machines would have taken over a lot of jobs. Because I've been banging on about this for a long time. Um, and I was wrong. They haven't. We're, we are uh, in the UK, in the US at least, <clears throat> nearly at full employment, although a lot of people think that uh, a lot of the jobs we've got are lousy jobs or gig jobs or self-employment, which isn't really a job at all uh, because people are just pretending to be working. But, you know, as, as near as damn it, we are nearly at full employment. So it's not a bad argument. Um, however, what we have coming now is a different type of automation. In, in the past, almost all the automation we've seen has been mechanization. And as you say, the agricultural industry is a classic example. In 1800, 80% of every American who worked <clears throat> was working on a farm, and that number went down to 40% in 1900, now it's down to about 1%. And that's because the, mach the machines took over our muscle jobs, which was what most people did. And that was not disastrous for the humans, because humans had another uh, set of skills to offer, the cognitive skills. And now the grandchildren of those farm laborers are working in shops and offices and making podcasts. Um, it didn't work out quite so well for the horse because the horse didn't have anything else to offer once the muscle jobs were taken. And there were 21 and a half million horses working in America in 1915. And that was peak horse. Now there are 2 million horses in America, uh, most of them effectively pets. So that's very, very significant technological unemployment. What we have coming next is is a different type of automation. It's it's cognitive automation. The machines are coming for our cognitive jobs. And we don't yet know whether we'll come across some third set of skills after the physical skills and the cognitive skills. Some people talk about spiritual skills or human skills. Maybe we'll all do caring jobs that the machines can't do. Um, I'm skeptical of that because uh, 
it, I, what I've seen and what we are seeing uh, in the economies around the world is is that machines can do caring jobs. In Japan, the um, they, they are at the front, the sort of the sharp edge of the graying of society, and they're quite technophile, and they don't really allow much immigration. And so they've got a shortage of people to look after their elderly people, and so they're using a lot of robots. And it turns out that elderly people really rather like being looked after by, by robots. Um, because all you have to do when you're providing care to, to a human is provide a semblance of care, of empathy, but provide the services that are needed and provide a, a complete level of respect. And it turns out machines can do that often better than humans. I mean, some humans are brilliant at it. Quite a lot of humans are not very good at it. And machines are always reasonably good at it. Um, so I'm sceptical that there's some sort of new caring economy in which we're all each other's therapists and doctors and nurses. Um, I think a better solution is a job is an economy in which humans don't do jobs and we find some other way of generating income or access to resources for the humans and humans do whatever we want to do. And I think that'd be really rather wonderful. The true leisure society, I think that's what we should be aiming for. So you, you can easily picture a future where, you know, grandchildren are asking us, you, you used to work every day? Like, what was that like? They wouldn't even have a concept for that. Exactly. Yeah. In, in a sense, um, I'm actually kind of living proof that this is possible because although I do really have a new job because my interest in AI has become a job, you know, I, I take my writing seriously and I spend a lot of time going around the world giving talks to people, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um but I, I have sort of retired, so I'm doing, a, I'm, I'm doing a job which isn't really a job. I'm working. I think humans will always work. We'll always have projects. Um, but it's not, you know, arguably it's not a job. Certainly I'm not an em employee and I don't take orders from anybody. Um, and I think that's possibly the, a, a decent model for people everywhere. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. Okay, so let's assume that this world is possible where we can we can actually get to a place where we don't have to have jobs, so to speak, that, that we're tied down to that, that are connected to how we get resources. What are those decisions that these new generations need to make as we take control of the technology, as we, we push the policies in different ways? Obviously, there's one of two ways we could go. We could kind of just let it go all out and we could make really bad decisions that, that end up destroying our species. But then we could also make great decisions that, that bring out the best. So what are those decisions you feel like people need to make over the next 20 years? I think in the first instance, we need to do, take the issue a lot more seriously. I don't think we're likely to be able to, to plan a route map for the journey. Um, I do have a sort of proposal, but it's not detailed and it may well not be the right one. Um, the future is in some ways foreseeable. You can see broad trends and one broad trend you can see, which is something we really must talk about uh, in order to put this in context, and that's exponential growth the exponential growth of technology. I hope your audience isn't bored yet with hearing about the exponential growth because it's not going to stop, Then, as in they're not going to stop hearing about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's really, really important to understand it and to understand the power um, that, that it creates. So most people have heard that their smartphone has more power, more compute power than 
NASA had when they sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. That is all of those computers in Houston, tot them all up, less, less compute power than the smartphone in your pocket. And that is true, but it's out of date. A, a good toaster now has more compute power than NASA had. Um, so that's you know an enormous improvement since the uh, late 60s. And as you move along an exponential curve, the rate of change stays the same, but the amount of change uh, gets obviously twice as twice as much if it's an exponential to the power of two. Um, and it means that in 10 years time, the machines we have will be 128 times more powerful than the ones we have today. In 20 years time, they'll be 8,000 times more powerful. And in 30 years time, they'll be a million times more powerful. Now, that's why I say that it's very likely that in 30 years time, not, not in five, not in two, not in 10 probably, but in 30 years time, it's very likely that machines will take over pretty much all the jobs we currently do for money. And this exponential growth in the performance of computers is known as Moore's Law. Moore's Law has, has, has always evolved through its life. It's had different um, underlying causes. Uh, and some people say that it's dying or dead, but it's not. Um, in fact, if anything, it's going slightly faster than it has for a, a while uh, because software is also going through a Moore's Law. So, so you can foresee that we'll have very, very powerful computers. You can see that. How exactly that will manifest probably depends to a large degree on decisions that we take. And also, things never work out quite the way you expect. Um, I don't suppose anybody could forecast at the end of the 19th century whether we were going to be using DC or AC for electricity. Um, nobody would have foreseen 40 years ago that our most powerful technology, artificial intelligence, would have been we'd be carrying it around in a telephone because at the time a telephone was a rather ugly device the size of a small dog and it was tied to a wall. So the precise way things pan out are unforeseeable. So I don't think we can kind of plan this uh, route march to the future and make wise or unwise decisions as we go along. But I think we should be thinking about it seriously because if you don't plan, even though all plans change when when as soon as the rubber hits the road. If you don't plan, then nothing happens at all. Uh, and, and you get chaos and you get very bad outcomes. There's an irony in that I talked a bit about the technological singularity, the arrival of superintelligence. There are four existential risk organizations, two in the States, two in the UK, which have, which have got a growing band of very bright people working out how to deal with the technological singularity. And the big, the big challenge there is to make sure that the first superintelligence on this planet really, really likes humans and understands humans better than we understand ourselves. So we are addressing that issue, rather surprisingly. It's quite a long way off, but there's a decent number of people working at it. We need more, they need more money, but we've started. We are not addressing the economic singularity, despite the fact that it will come a lot sooner. And one of the reasons why is that the people running the tech companies and I don't think these are bad people, but I think they have persuaded themselves that joblessness is not a real problem. Eric Schmidt, for instance, chairman of Google or Alphabet, likes to say he's a job elimination denier. He doesn't believe it's possible. Well, he may be right that it won't happen. Maybe something else will happen instead. But to say that it's not possible is really complacent and dangerous. And we have to get past that. And to, we need to set up some analogs to those existential risk organizations looking at the subject of, of the economic singularity. The solution that people who do take the 
problems seriously tend to come up with is universal basic income. And there's a bit of hand-waving that goes on in Silicon Valley, particularly, and people say, oh, well, you know, if, if, the, if the machines take over all the jobs, we'll just introduce universal basic income, job solved. The trouble with that is that if goods and services remain expensive in the way they are now, to have a universal basic income, you're going to have to tax the people who've still got jobs, and there probably will be a few, and the people who've got assets – and they're called Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, um, you're going to have to tax them very, very heavily, and they will run away to the Cayman Islands and hide. That's what rich people do if you tax them too hard. So I don't think that will work. And then there's a really nasty problem in, in the idea of universal basic income, which is the little word in the middle of it, basic. It simply means that what we're doing, at best, if it works, is to make everybody poor. And that will be disastrous. Um, and, and a failure. We have to make everybody rich. We have to make everybody rich without them having to do a job. And the only solution that I can think of to this is to make everything cheap. If you make the costs of goods and services, all the goods and services you need for a very good standard of living, very cheap, then you don't have to tax the rich people very much at all. And that, I think, makes it all possible. And it's called the econ the economy of abundance or the Star Trek economy. And it sounds like complete madness the first few times you hear it. <laughs> but it's it seems to me the only way to make an economy that's pretty much jobless uh, a, a happy outcome. So I think that we need a series of think tanks, a series of institutes to come up with some other solutions, because I really hope that isn't the only possible solution, um, and to analyze whether they are plausible and to analyze how whichever ones look plausible, we nudge things in that direction rather than in, in, in any of the less optimal directions. And obviously, different countries, different jurisdictions, different states in America, etc., will try different solutions and some will work, some won't work. Um, and hopefully we'll all kind of narrow in on a, on a consensus view that solution A, B and C do work and we should all adopt one of those. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully if we do that, we'll have a, a, a good outcome. What I think would be really bad is if we just don't start thinking about it at all until it starts to happen. That, that's the that's the thing that strikes me as being a real danger. Which is, I think, a, a failure of our of us as, as humans is that we tend to put things off. And you know, there, there are people that that plan well, but they seem to be outliers. It seems like as a as a people, we tend to say, "Oh, we'll deal with that when it comes." And this is definitely something where we need to plan ahead. So, speaking of that, let's leave our listeners with with a recommendation, something they can be thinking about. Specifically, we talked about philosophy. We talked about science fiction, even. We're at a stage where people are going to start programming self-driving cars to make that infamous trolley decision, right? Do you pull off and you kill the one kid or do you pull off and, and kill the, the 30 adults that are there? We have to kind of decide that. It's not just a, a fun thought experiment anymore. So what would you leave listeners with in terms of some resources if they want to get started up in, in science fiction as a way just to get their minds broadened about these things? Where should they start? So, well, I apologize in advance. Obviously, they should read my book. Um, yeah. the, the economic singularity, it goes into a lot of depth about all of this. Uh, I actually offer a, a free, shorter version of it called Our Jobless Future at my website. Uh, if you sign up for my um, newsletters, then I send you a free copy of that. <clears throat> and my website is, is www.pandorasbrain.com, pandorasbrain.com. Um, so I think that's, you know, 
a pretty good resource. There's a whole load of books that have been written about the subject. Um, there's a chap called Carl Frey, who was one of the authors of a report back in 2013, which got the current wave of conversation about AI and automation going. And he's just produced a book called The Technology Trap, which is about how uh, the last wave of technology disruption uh, in the Industrial Revolution played out and how that was really quite difficult. So that, that would be another good book to read. But I think the, I suppose the most um, important recommendation I would make to people is have a think seriously about whether you believe that if machines continue to get twice as powerful every year, every 18 months or so, if Moore's law continues, do you think that in 30 years time, um, there could be massive widespread joblessness? And if so, what, what are we going to do about it? I think more people should be taking that question seriously. All right. So if you could invite any living or deceased science fiction writer and bring them on to the most important think takes on this, who would it be? Greg Egan. He's a brilliant science fiction writer. His early books, particularly Permutation City and Diaspora, really extraordinary. There's very few people who write successfully, I think, about a post-superintelligence world. And he's, he's one of the few. And he's remarkable in a number of ways. One is that there are no photos of him on the internet. He's managed somehow to keep his face off the internet. That itself is a great feat. That's good. Isn't it, just? <laughs> well, great. Well, Callum, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, you, you mentioned your website, the book is there. Anything else we sh you should leave us with? No, I think we've covered it. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. It's going to be good to explore this topic in depth a little bit later, but uh, thanks so much for sharing all your insights. My pleasure. Great fun. Hey, if you're the kind of person who listens to the very end, you must be a fan. Now, we are building a team of people who really love what we're talking about and want to go deeper. If you want to interact with guests, drive the content of Work Minus, and give feedback on our work before it goes public, send an email to neil at workminus.com. It's N-E-I-L at workminus.com, and I'll get you connected.